You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. The reading is taken from Isaiah 58, verses 6 to 12. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke and set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk. And if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairers of broken walls, restorers of streets with dwellings. Amen. Great. Thank you very much, Graham. And thank you uh, very much, everyone. And thank you for organising this thing for Corny and I on that Saturday. That's really good. It's uh, been a, a privilege to have led the church, really, across 20 years. But you know that about two and a half years ago, perhaps it was, can't remember, um, I retired from leading the church um, and handed over to Nathan. He's not here this morning, and then Nathan got ill, so I kind of stepped half back in for a little while and then retired again. And people keep asking me what I'm doing with my retirement. Um, so <laughs> I retired from leading the church. There's a really, um, there's a great article, and I shouldn't say it's a great article, I think it actually is a very well-written article, in the Church Times that came out on Friday. It's a double-page spread um, uh, and it's a, it's a well-written one. Sometimes articles aren't well-written. But they interviewed me basically about some of the things I'm doing in Oasis. So if you want to know about what I'm doing with all this spare time I've got, there's a, there's a great article about therapeutic educational care, etc. A whole ranch of things that we're working on together across London and across the country. And uh, you can read about all that there. But um, this book... <coughs> Here it is, a manifesto for hope, 10 principles for transforming the lives of children, young people and their families. Um, in in uh, December nine, uh, uh, 19, in December 
2021, in the middle of the pandemic. If you remember December 2021, it was the end of the year when we'd been locked down, then opened up uh, by Rishi Sunak, who said, you know, uh, eat out to help out. Do you remember eating out to help out? And then everybody caught COVID again. <laughs> then there was another lockdown. Do you remember that? And then uh, the big hope was that we'd be let out of our second lockdown for Christmas and everybody was getting ready for that. And then just days before that happened, we got locked in for Christmas again. Do you, do you remember that? So it was in the middle of all that. Uh, uh, and it was on uh, uh, the day before New Year's Eve, December the 30th, uh, as people were kind of still locked in and couldn't uh, create relationships. And this had gone on for a year and the terrible impact that that had had and is still having on mental health as you know, around the country, the long tail of COVID really is long. It's, uh, it's going to be decades long as we work out the impact and work through the impact on so many people, so many children. Well, on that day, inside 12 hours, two Oasis students were murdered. One was murdered in Croydon um, at 7 o'clock in the evening. He was stabbed. He was a teenager and he was stabbed to death and then a few hours later early the next morning um, I was told that a five-year-old child in one of our schools in Oldham had been murdered the night before by his mother in the council house where they lived and it was out of the agony for me of those 12 hours and those two events that this book was triggered because I was really aware um, the mother has since been convicted and is spending life in prison for murdering her son. Why does a mother murder her son? How does she live with that? What caused it? A poor mother with no income, living alone, locked in for a year, unable to see beyond her own emotional concerns, unable to give. There's no excuse for those things, and yet it is a reason for these things. So I wrote this book, A Manifest Over Hope. It was on December the 1st, 1942, a long time before, that an elderly man in his mid-60s, well, I'm in my mid-60s, so there you go. <laughs> Blimey. What I mean is, a young, sprightly thing, <laughs> a young, sprightly thing in his mid-60s bounced up Downing Street, which was easier to bounce up then because there wasn't all that security. Some of you old enough to remember before all the gates and bars and guns and all the rest of it. And he just bounced up, um, he walked up. <laughs> He walked up Downing Street and he knocked on the door of number 10, December the 1st, 1942. He was totally unknown. He'd um, been an academic here in London and then he helped um, with civil servants with various bits and bobs and he delivered a paper, a report, knocked on the door and actually delivered a report that was 300 pages long. And it was a manifesto for hope except it wasn't called that. His name was William Beveridge. 
He was totally unknown until that moment. But the beverage report became one of the foundational documents in the development of civilization in many countries around the world, including ours. Because William Beveridge, in his report, said the only way to recover from the Second World War, remember he's delivering it in the middle of the Second World War, the only way that we can recover is if we build a welfare system, a national welfare system that will hold everyone and not let anyone drop, and a national health system. Let's build a national health system. Well, in 1946, the war was ended. That was Winston Churchill's um, national government that he delivered it to, you know, a kind of giant coalition. And uh, it, it, after the Second World War, um, Clement Attlee became the Prime Minister, Labour Prime Minister. <coughs> and Attlee's government in 1946 began to put in place the welfare system. Some of you, uh, you know, have benefited from all sorts of uh, uh, elements of that. Uh, payment if you're sick, benefits, etc., all, all for the first time ever, uh, really, provided by government. Payments to young families, um, family income support, children's allowance, all of those things. And, of course, in 1948, July 1948, was set up the pinnacle of the whole thing, a national health system, free to everyone at the point of delivery to ensure that no one ever fell into poverty and that everyone was held by this great net of care that was called society. That's what he talked about. The problem was this. I should say, by the way, before I move on, that Beveridge's report, a government report, you know, you know, a government report, you know, there are endless government reports that you read of week in, week out. This government report sold 600,000 copies to ordinary people. They say that you could ride on a bus and people would be reading the Beveridge report on the way to work, on the tubes. People fought to get hold of a copy because they had to keep reprinting it. And it was, and it was um, translated into 22 other languages around the world. Beveridge became a celebrity. He did world tours talking about how you could create welfare systems to create equality, to kind of level up. But here's the thing. Little known or talked about is this, that in 1946, before the NHS was set up and before um, the welfare, as the welfare state was being rolled out, William Beveridge walked back up Downing Street one more time and he delivered another report, one that you've never heard of and nobody was interested in. But here's what he said, it will never work. It's fatally flawed. It's fatally flawed because you've turned your back, he said, on the key principle that I built into my initial report. And my initial report was that this should be about partnership between the state, between government and the people, between statutory services and voluntary agencies, churches, uh, grassroots organizations. 
And he said, and you've turned your back on that great principle, and therefore this is fatally flawed, and it cannot last. It will struggle. It will not do it. No one was listening, though. No one was listening because those families who were longing for welfare and a free health service, because there wasn't one uh, for many people, they were so overjoyed that it was on its way that they didn't listen. And the government didn't listen for another reason. Do you know what it was? It was this. The government of the day said, the problem is that if we create a partnership between government and uh, professionals and civil servants and ordinary local people, grassroots organizations and churches and things, the problem is that local people are too emotional. They get too emotionally involved with those who they're trying to work for. They can't be objective. They can't sit back. They can't rise above it. They can't take a helicopter view of what's going on. It'll all get messed up. You have to leave it to people who can be professional, not not emotionally engaged and emotionally involved. And that's why we got what we got. Within, some of you old enough to remember this almost, um, but many of you would have read it, within 12 months the NHS was already struggling. A prescription charge was introduced on glasses, 50% you had to pay. A prescription charge was introduced for medicines because the rush was overwhelming. In fact, it took everyone back because, you see, what had really happened is because you had to pay for medicines a lot of the time, because you had to pay for medicines, um, parents, especially mothers, just put up with stuff. For them, you know, they would never come and report their ailments and their illnesses and their rotting teeth, etc., etc. On the day the NHS opened in July uh, 1948, you should look at that, there were huge queues because suddenly people who just walked with a limp all their life because they were devoted to someone else's needs realized that they could get some support for themselves. And there was a crush. So within a 12 months, uh, 18 months, um, uh, Bevan, Nye Bevan, who was the minister, the health minister who put it all into action, had resigned because he promised everybody everything free and he couldn't deliver it. Deliver it. And his junior minister, the guy that went on to be prime minister in the end, Harold Wilson, he also resigned because they believed that they weren't delivering what the people had asked for. And Beveridge kept saying, it's because you've not engaged communities. You've not worked with communities. To use an expression he never used, but we know well, you've done things to people, not with people. And that is the fatal flaw. Beveridge's manifesto for hope, in the end, fell on deaf ears. You know, um, Oasis, little story about this, sound like name dropping, uh, but, it's, it, but it's not for dropping of names, it's important who the person was. So in, in, um, in the uh, late 90s uh, and early 2000s, um, I had, I'd got to know um, the Labour government then, I got to know Tony Blair before he was the Prime Minister actually because I took a funeral and he came to it basically. It was a big funeral, I was in charge. The, the fellow who died 
um, had given some money to the Labour Party. The leader of the Labour Party, who was called John Smith, died suddenly, and this young kind of lad, Tony Blair, became the leader of it. So he came to the funeral because I asked him to do a little bit in the funeral to speak about the guy who died who'd given them a lot of money. And uh, so I struck up this friendship with Tony Blair, and um, then, lo and behold, he became the Prime Minister. What's the chance of that happening? A guy you meet at a funeral turns up as the Prime Minister a bit later. And, um, and, and he, Tony Blair knew that we'd started schools in India. Oasis had begun schools in India. I'm half Indian. And we'd begun, the first schools Oasis operated uh, are, are all in India. In fact, the latest school we built is in India as well. Um, you should go see Oasis in India sometime. It's, it's fantastic. And, um, and so Tony Blair knew about this, not because he was the Prime Minister, just because he was this bloke who did this little talk for me at the funeral. And so then he became Prime Minister, and, and um, I had a conversation with him again, and he said, could you do some of what you do there, here? And that's how we came to open schools like this one. Um, interesting. It's all about relationships, life, isn't it? It's about, it's community. That's what it's about. So, uh, we're, we're the, you know, schools are growing and all the rest of it. Then, um, one day, um, well, I don't know if you know this, but we, we, I always um, longed as a kid, I, you've probably heard me boring you with this, that when I grew up, I'd, I'd start a school, a house, and a hospital. And people often ask me, well, you've not started any hospitals in England, although we do lots of healthcare. But in 1993, I ran a campaign and built a hospital in India, which is called, uh, it's called, uh, it's called GM Priya. In fact, it's turned into a whole town now, they say, GM Priya, but, <laughs> and as a town. But it, it's GM because I got the money out of GMTV, who I used uh, to work for a bit. And, um, and, and Priya, because she was a girl who survived an earth, there was an earthquake that destroyed 40 villages in India, and Priya survived for five and a half days under her iron cot. All her family were killed. And um, I, I got this national way of raising money, and then we raised a load of money, and, and GMTV wanted GM to be in the name of it, and Priya, I wanted to be in the name of it, so we called it GM Priya. And now it's an Indian word, GM Priya. <laughs> so they just say GM Priya. And it's a giant hospital, which is an aid specialism hospital, but now there's a school and a whole town grown up, and the town's called GM Priya. <laughs> so there you go. Anyway, Tony Blair knew about that, you see. So he called me into number 10 Downing Street one day, and he said, he said, what about healthcare in this country? And we had a conversation, which I recount in this book, and, uh, and, and I said, the problem is, uh, he got a load of advisors in, NHS pe people, I said, the problem is this, no one's doing what Beveridge said. Before the NHS, churches and other voluntary groups used to run all sorts of um, community care, really did, community nursing. The church I grew up in, in South Norwood, we used to have, when I was a kid, there was someone called Deaconess Marjorie. And Deaconess Marjorie sometimes used to stand at the front and do a Bible reading. So I kind of thought of her um, as a kind of, well, a, a minister's assistant, you know. And uh, anyway, um, she retired, and that was the end. We never had another deaconess. It took me years and years and years and years to discover, because no one teaches you this stuff, but I read it in the end, endless Baptist churches had deaconesses. It was a Baptist church. What was a deaconess? 
They were community health workers. But in 1948, they were all robbed of their job because the NHS took over, the government took over, and they became Bible readers and make the tea and run, you know, little groups in the church. And then when Marjorie retired, she wasn't replaced because her job had started as a community health worker and she'd ended up as someone standing up on Sundays reading the Bible. Standing up on Sundays reading the Bible, I should say. Yeah, Graham, it's a wonderful thing to do. <laughs> it was the church robbed. And I remember saying to this little group gathered at number 10 Downing Street, churches, I know why the NHS was set up, because churches were doing a patchy job, and there were other voluntary agencies involved. It was a bit of a postcode lottery. If you had a church that was on it, some stuff happened in community, but not enough. But if you had churches that weren't on it, nothing happened, you know? So it was a postcode lottery. So, so I, said, I, said to, I said to them, so it was like, you know, the problem is we were doing this and then you took over, but the problem is as you've taken over, you can't deliver. This is 20 years ago at least, you know, because the problems with the NHS and the welfare state aren't fresh. They're not new. It's not because of the COVID crisis or some cost of living thing. It's been going on, if you research it, since the 70s. Well, it's been going on since 18 months after it was founded because uh, Bevan had to, had, to, had to resign because it couldn't be what it was spent but by the 1970s the NHS and welfare state were in huge trouble read about it and from the 70s onwards we've had this massive thing what do we do where do we go and it's just got worse and worse and worse and worse and in fairness you know if you take the NHS it's a fantastic example of extraordinary stuff and is the victim of its own incredible success when the NHS was founded in 48, most people were in work and in work for life and most people worked on production lines. You know, that's the problem with education. It's still 20th century preparing people for a production line and not for 21st century life, in my view. Um, but um, most people were in work for life. You retired at 65 and died on average at 67, which is exactly what I am now. You snuffed it. You know, most people did. You lived two years beyond. So when they set up a pension scheme, it only had to pay out for two years. And then, boom, you know, now people live on 20, 25 years beyond that. It's extraordinary. When the NHS was set up, the best they could offer you was false teeth. You know, there was a rush on false teeth because uh, everybody's teeth were rotten and the mums never complained about it. But when they found out they could get free teeth, they uh, went to get them, but you kind of like do the lot, you know, just fit me with those dentures. That was a big problem, but the NHS could give you dentures and penicillin. Now there's gene therapy. Now there's hip and heart replacements. Now, do you know diabetes wasn't even a thing? You look at it, no one talked about the word diabetes. It just didn't exist. I mean, a few people had it, but we didn't eat as much sugar and all that throwaway processed food that makes us obese and all the rest of it. Society was different. In, in 1948, the word teenager hadn't been invented. That came later with Elvis and his gyrating hips. But it's not just... It, it literally did. It wasn't a word. How did teens dress in 1948? 
have a look in some old pictures, black and whites today, like their mums and dads. What music did they listen to? The same as their mums and dads. But with Elvis, and then in this country with the Beatles, and then the Rolling Stones, came a completely different way of life. And that caused huge tensions in families and issues and except the NHS was set up for a different world and has been incredibly successful and because it's been incredibly successful the issues get tougher and tougher and tougher and tougher so where do you go and what do you do so there we are with Tony Blair and he put it like this he said, the problem is, Steve, which, which is the bit in my book, he said, the problem is, Steve, you were holding the baby. He was talking about me as a Christian leader, you know. He said, you guys were holding the baby and you couldn't hope, cope. You were trying to parent and you couldn't do it. And we looked at you and we thought, they can't cope, so we'll cope. And so we set up the NHS and we became the parent and now we're holding the baby you couldn't do the thing and we are left holding the baby on our own and we can't cope. It takes two parents to create this safety net in society. It takes two parents. So what do we do? Well, I'm going to talk a lot more about this and with Julie Siddiqui, who you've got to meet on Tuesday night. Julie Siddiqui is one of the most progressive Muslim leaders I've ever met in my life. She, you know, don't bother coming to listen to me. Come and listen to Ju uh, Julie. She is an amazing woman. She truly is. Some of you would have heard her commentating in national media and all the rest of it. Um, but we are called back into community. As I put it, um, to Blair on that day, I said, the problem is that when you stole our job from us, you pushed us indoors and we've spent 50 years, 60 years, 70 years just singing ourselves to death. Not that singing and, uh, and songs and worship is, that is fantastic. Uh, it's a fan and you know what I mean, don't you? You know what I mean? So we, we talk about what we're going to do. We have this morning, actually, if you listen. We talk about what we're going to do. But what we, happened is we were stopped from doing it. We met to sing and to pray and to remember who we were and what our mission was. But as I said to Blair, but you nicked our mission from us and you belittled us in that. But not only have you belittled us, Society is crumbling because the church and other organisations, voluntary agencies and faith groups have a huge role to play and robbed of it. We can get nowhere. Well, that's all the in introduction to my book. You know, <laughs> And there are a lot of chapters and principles that I've learned, so I'm going to skip right right to the end of it, not that, because in it, on Tuesday we're talking about some of the meat of it um, and how you do all this stuff and how it's possible and how Oasis is actually doing it in lots of places. You see, that's the point, is actually doing it in lots of places in a joined up way. Here with the schools and the church and the children's centre and working in the A&E of the hospital and all that kind of stuff, endless government people show up all the time, honestly, every week to find out how do you do it but of course, then it all gets lost. You know, you can write endless, endless reports and fill forms and tick boxes, but you need people to actually do it. 
which is a completely different thing. You can do things without ever writing any reports. Reports should be written after you've done it and write down what you've learned by doing it, not just prescribe endless stuff. I've read more vision statements in my life than you, you know, I can count. But how many of them actually were to do with stuff that was really happening and owned? Anyway, I have a friend who is, um, who's, uh, who's an, Im, an Im, he leads one of Britain's cities, you know, and um, uh, uh, he's a good friend of mine, and uh, he's a Christian, and he used to work for Tear Fund a um, long time ago, and, uh, and I was chatting with him because we're working on some big uh, projects, Oasis and his city are working on some big projects, and um, this was um, right at the start of the lockdowns we were talking. And um, so it was on Teams, you know, just chatting on Teams. And um, we were talking about, um, we were talking about a, a big housing development we're involved in together to create uh, housing and, and hopefully some children's homes, with, you know, um, somewhere. And so we're working on this project. It's one of the things I'm working on right now. So we're working on this project. And... Um, and we're going to build a school, which is a net zero school. And, you know, even, even though some of the governments decided net zero isn't quite as important, we're still pressing on with 2030, you know, <laughs> uh, because we think it is important. Uh, and so we're building this net zero school and all this stuff. We're, we're working on it. And, and um, so Oasis will run the school and um, uh, et cetera, et cetera all, all sorts of bits of the, the children's homes. Um, and, and, but we were talking about the social housing that's going to be built into the scheme. And I said to him, can Oasis run the social housing? You know? And he said, well, why do you want to do that? And I said, well, because that's how Oasis began, housing before anything else. And, and I said, what we know is that it's no good just supplying social housing. You've got to work with people and enable them, work with them and empower them. And as you empower them, you lift them out of poverty. You lift them out of intergenerational poverty. And if you lift one person out of poverty, it's like, you know, it's like, um, it's like planting one seed and then the seed grows up and then the next year you've got 20 seeds and then you've got 20 plants. And it's, yeah. So you begin with one person and then uh, generationally it drives forward this huge amount of stuff. It's about development work. It's about... It's about, it's about not trapping people and supporting them in their poverty. It's not about trapping people. It's about a trampoline, not a tramp, uh, not, not a trap. It's not trapping people. It's trampolining them into something else. And he said to me, he, there was a long silence in our, our conversation. And he said, do you know, I've not talked about that kind of stuff since I worked at Tear Fund. He said, our council doesn't do that. We don't do development. We don't do trampolines. We support people. The church is about trampolines. I've got a friend who's also called Steve, who I spent some of Friday together because he's working with us on, we're opening up, therapeutic alternative to a youth jail as you know that's one of the things I'm working on so Steve spent um, some of uh, 
Friday afternoon. Um, just we're doing some planning, but you know. Well, let me tell you about Steve. Steve is 36. Steve grew up in London. Steve is black. Steve, this is how he'd say it, worked the streets as a kid. In other words, he was a dealer. He worked the streets, a particular patch, actually, because you always work a patch, with three mates, three friends. His mum was a Christian, is a Christian, and his mum prayed for him every night and was totally distressed that he'd been pulled into gang culture and into knives and into guns. She prayed for him, she told him, every night. He said it drove him mad because she'd always tell him. Then one night, when he was um, when he was 18, 19, he had a dream. And this is the dream. He had a dream that he and his three mates had been arrested for murder and all given life sentences. So that day, he sat in a cafe with his three friends who were making a lot of money out working the street and he told them about the dream and he said he was giving up because he didn't want that dream to come true and they said don't be stupid we're not murdering anyone we just sell stuff we make people happy we're salesmen you know we we got a business we don't we we're not don't murder anyone but he left he left and he decided to go to a boxing club because he needed to get some discipline in his life. He went to the boxing club, he got really good at it and he became the British amateur champion. Took some years. And the morning after, his mother brought the Daily Mail into his bedroom because he was pretty exhausted and getting up late and he was on the back page of the Daily Mail because he'd become this amateur chaplain, uh, uh, champion. There was only a little bit about him, but he was on the back page. And then he looked at the front page of the mail, the headlines. He knew nothing about this until that moment. His three friends had been sentenced for life for murder. Anyway, he's gone on and he's done a lot with boxing and he's set up, set up boxing clubs and mentoring schemes, etc., etc. And, um, and uh, they're brilliant. And, um, and uh, now um, they work in some prisons and youth offending sites and all the rest of it. It's just about, it's mentoring and it's discipline and it's, you know, etc., etc. Um, where we work on the Isle of Sheppey, we run a school there, there are three prisons that's one of the problems with the Isle of Sheppey, which has a lot of poverty. And the Category A prison, do you know Category A means murderers, rapists, you know, terrorists? Um, category A prison is called Swaleside. And Steve, um, uh, Steve, because of his boxing stuff, um, a few months ago went into Swaleside to begin some boxing work there, invited by the governor 
And he sat in a hall waiting to meet some men. And the guys walked in and one of them looked at him and they instantly recognized one another because it was one of his four friends who was now in Swaleside serving life for murder. Why do I tell you that story? Because it's about a moment of transformation. It's about a moment of awe. And as I spoke to my other friend, you know, the city leader, I said, the thing is that people are lifted out of poverty, not by systems. They're never lifted out of poverty by systems. In fact, since I spoke to my mate, you know, who runs the city, um, uh, I, uh, and it was at the beginning of the lockdowns, I've done this little thing with it, uh, little thing. Every time I talk to a city leader, I've asked them the same question. Um, uh, this, this week, I've just been up in Liverpool. I met with a, the, the mayor of Liverpool about educational stuff. So I asked the same question. Do you know people, um, I, when I talk to directors of children's services, senior social workers, I say, do you know a family, a person who's been lifted out of poverty, lifted out of it properly and is thriving? Do you know? Can you give me their name? Don't have to give me their name. Just say, yeah, I know X and this is their story. In two and a half years or whatever it's been since the start of the lockdowns, I had not come across one senior social worker, one children's director of, so, uh, uh, of any local authority or one metro mayor who's been able to say to me, Steve, I can tell you about one family that's been transformed. And yet, Christian charities all over the country can tell you that story dozens and hundreds and thousands of times by people who've been lifted out of nothingness through a transformative moment like the moment I told you about in Steve's dream. When he would now say, God met me. My mother's prayers were answered. I haven't got a clue, he says, how it happened or why it happened and why it happened to me and not someone else. But all I can say, it was supernatural. I don't understand it. But that moment turned me from being one thing into another thing. That moment of awe. What happened to me when I was 14 as I was wandering up a street in South Norwood by Crystal Palace Football Ground and I suddenly realised that God's offer for my life, I'm telling my story, was better than anything else. My school's story was rubbish for me. It was, you'll never amount to much, never pass any exams, it's not worth putting you in. But my youth group at the Baptist, that's why I'm a Baptist minister, because I went to Baptist church, you know, kind of like, you know, that's not the only reason. I, I went to this Baptist youth group and... I heard this story that my life mattered and it was a moment of awe. Yeah, it was in a little street walking home from the youth club to where I lived. I, it's a moment of awe, a moment of awakening, a moment of epiphany. The lights go on and you think, yes, you're lifted out of something into something else and your life gets direction and purpose and meaning. I've found that those little crisis things need to keep happening. Otherwise, you can have the moment of awe, the moment of awakening, and 20 years later, you're still hopping on about it. You know, kind of like, like kind of, and you go to sleep. If that was a moment of awakening, you slowly fall asleep again, and then you do religion, and you do church, and you do life. But, oh, I remember when I became a Christian. It's how is God meeting you now, today? Where is that moment for you? 
Where is that moment for us? Well, I've um, already talked for too long. 40 minutes, actually. I've just looked at my watch. <laughs> that's terrible, isn't it? That's really terrible. That's, that's um, extraordinarily terrible. So. You see, say this last thing. This is, this is called a manifesto for hope. And we tell everybody to have hope. And we say, hope, you know, I know you live in bad circumstances or you've not got a job or your family's falling apart or the relationship you craved has broken on you or your partner's left you or you're living, you know, in a second place place, you know, not your place of choice, you're living where you don't want to be. Hope, have hope. Here's the thing, in Oasis schools around the country, we've got 32, 33,000 children. I'm not sure how many because we just added two more schools uh, this, this year. But the thing is, you can't tell people to have hope if they've got no hope. Have hope, be hopeful. Hope is a shallow thing unless it's built on something. It has to have some substance, do you see? Otherwise, you're hopeless. What is hope built on? Faith. And without faith. By the way, the, the, um, that uh, PN's book, you know, um, The Sin of Certainty, is a brilliant book because PN's is a brilliant theologian, but his book is as simple as it they come. Do you know what I mean? It's profound but easy. It's not scary. It's brilliant. I recommend it to you. And it's like, I don't, uh, Pete's book is saying this, I don't understand everything and I can't see everything and there are endless mysteries and I don't really know why prayer works or if it works and how it works and when it works and when it doesn't. I don't, but I don't need to. My hope is built on a faith that there is a God who is love, who's on the side of every human being and is the author of every life and will not give up on them. The Manifesto of Hope, my book, Beveridge's thing, which was a lot better than my book, is built on that. As our lives are transformed, then we be and are enabled to bring hope to others and get involved. And what does what I've said mean for you as an individual? I haven't got a clue. But I know you, you know, that's the important thing. Do you know what all this means for your life, your career, where you go, the moves you make, the way you live, the way you commit yourself to your community, to this community? I pray for you and me that we may have many moments of awe as we meet with God and are constantly transformed by those. Amen.